welcome to rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. And in our second season, we are focusing on rhetoric and religion. Today, we discuss the power and the mystery of Buddhist rhetoric. But first, let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started. Fusse te, te me enai agathon e kakon e gar ti esti fusse agathon kai kakon. Pasin ophelai agathon he kakon huparkain. That's Diogenes Laertius, if I'm not mistaken, is it not, Tim? I, I, I'm pretty sure that is. You know, uh, you're, you're getting better at this, Dave. I am getting good at it. Uh, did you know that Nietzsche absolutely hated that dude? Oh, Nietzsche hated a lot of guys. Yeah. Uh, well, that's Nietzsche, true. Nietzsche apparently once punched a horse in the face. <laughs> did he really? <laughs> he oh, did. wow. That's funny. All right, Tim, <laughs> uh, what is Buddhist rhetoric? Okay, to answer that, we need to first explain Buddhism. I agree. Buddhism revolves around three concepts, which influence the nature of Buddhist rhetoric. First is impermanence, only lasting for a bit of time. Things are in flux. Next is suffering pain, distress. And third is the non-self. There is no permanent personal entity that can be called the self or ego. Buddhists have this idea of this noble eightfold path. There's the right view, the right action, the right livelihood. But for us, I think the most important one is the right speech. Uh, I think you're right. And so the right speech includes no lying, no divisive speech, no abusive speech, and no idle chatter. Perhaps that is why some scholars used to contend that there's no such thing as Buddhist rhetoric. Yeah, and that's also why uh, we would never have Thanksgiving if my family were Buddhists, right? <laughs> right? So, but uh, the right speech is about communicating thoughtfully so we can uh, uh, communicate with one another and heal division, right? That sounds very mm-hmm. much like Kenneth Burke, doesn't it? It does. Um, and not speaking unkindly or in anger, and it helps us to become uh, kind of compassionate towards others. So Buddhist rhetoric is unlikely to be useful for firing up the base. No, not at all, not at all. So from this Eightfold Path, uh, scholars have identified five ethical guidelines for speaking. What's the first one, Tim? First is embrace the silence. Don't talk internally or externally to yourself or the audience when confronted with Silence. Feels a bit paradoxical, no? Like the sound of one hand clapping? The sound of one orator not speaking? You know, I, I've heard the sound of one hand clapping before. It's actually kind of easy. You just kind of do this, right? Like that. Oh, that's very good. Yeah, it's good. Um, so the second one is to avoid language that seeks ego identification and uses a, a example, uses language to promote uh, knowledge, right, Tim? Mm-hmm. Can you uh, you have an example of e- uh, either one of those? Well, name dropping might fit here. Bob Dylan and the Dalai Lama both asked for signed copies of my Nobel Prize acceptance speech, but I don't give autographs. Oh, so that's the uh, 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 ego identification, right? In terms of uh, language that promotes knowledge, I, I was curious. Uh, correctio, right? So uh-huh. when you when you say something and then seek to clarify it or something like that, that seems to be a uh, uh, a way of using language that promotes knowledge. But I don't know if that will be actually Buddhist in nature, as we might suggest a little later. Okay, right. very interesting. What's the third one, Tim? Uh, avoid speech that creates strong desire. 
this is because desire creates suffering. Mm-hmm. So I guess all ad copy is out of the question, yeah. especially anything using Monroe's motivated sequence. Anything, right? And so the fourth ethical kind of guideline uh, is to speak consistently, right? So uh, say what you're going to do, do what you're going to say, speak consistently with all things you say, right? No, mm-hmm. I guess no flip-flops and things like that. And be consistent with the truth and be honest. Wow. Pretty admirable stuff there. I, yeah, well, so, yeah. Yeah. So there's a, a fifth principle, which is don't put people down. Don't denigrate. Whoops, there goes political speeches and the pre- prosecution's case in the law courts. Tim, I'm picking up that you don't think uh, uh, law and political speech has much to do with Buddhist rhetoric. <laughs> I got my questions. I guess we should discuss the person who started all this, Siddhartha Gautama, right? He's the, the mm-hmm. first Buddha, the enlightened one. And he was a, a bit of a preacher of sorts, although some might call him a teacher. Uh, but it's, uh, but he was, it's clear he was a teacher of the ideas that became the basis for traditions, beliefs, the spiritual practices uh, that uh, is the Buddhist religion. And some people have called him a supremely persuasive communicator. Uh, as mentioned earlier, he used kind of this language that was understandable to ordinary people. And that's where I want to come back to that correctio. Right, so mm-hmm. correctio is kind of that using a big, fancy, elaborate way of saying something and then clarifying it, which seems kind of ostentatious, right? I don't know if that would necessarily yeah. be Buddhist, because some people might use it in a very deliberate, kind of manipulative way. Mm-hmm. But anyway, back to uh, 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 Siddhartha. Uh, unlike Western ideals of communication, he placed the audience at the center of communication, and so uh, uh, Western ideals of communication and rhetoric eventually kind of came to that, but he started that kind of idea right from the beginning. I'm not saying he necessarily influenced it, but he prioritized the audience. He was ahead of his day. He was ahead of his day. So uh, as Buddhism developed and grew, it was clearly different from Christian preaching in substance and style. In terms of substance, the truth of the subject or content, in Christianity that's based on the Bible. But in Buddhist rhetoric, the truth comes from various sutras, canonical texts, and different sects of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Christian preaching focuses on the discovery of the truth revealed by God. But Buddhist preaching stresses the meaning of portrayals and depictions of the sutras. And unlike Buddhism, Christianity doesn't welcome the idea of followers to become God or such. No, not at all. Buddhism has traditionally allowed the founder of each community to be a Buddha, the object of people's belief and worship. So there can be many Buddhas, but there can't be many Christs. That's right. So uh, in terms of style, Buddhist rhetoric, uh, the style of Buddhist rhetoric is uh, very natural. It's subtle. It has brevity. That's that's very laconic. (laughs) Saying very laconic is also very laconic, right? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So naturalists, let's, I guess we should talk about these three natural, uh, naturalness, subtlety, and brevity. So naturalness refers to uh, uh, the expression, right? It's not artificial. It's not stiff. Um, it's more of a spontaneous way of expressing and communicating one's inner uh, feelings, their thinking. Um, it's not ex- uh, uh, subject to the rules of distorting ideas and things like that. It's, it's very genuine from the heart, you might say. Mm-hmm. And brevity comes from the principle of Zen Buddhism, uh, which is less is more, or less is better, I should say. Not less is yeah. more, right? Less is better. So when you talk less, the idea is it creates a greater space for your uh, imagination of the audience and of the speaker uh, and allows for more creativity 
because when you talk so much and fill so much into it, uh, uh, it kind of limits one's imagination to freely associate all the possible kind of creative thoughts, right? Uh, it's almost, I don't know if you've read much Emmanuel Levinas, the communication philosopher. Uh, it's, I have not. It's very much like that. Most people have it, and if you read it, you would know why. But it's some, got some interesting things in it. So uh, an example of brevity that is uh, uh, not uncommon for Buddhists is to use silence, humor, eye contact, laughter, yearning, and coughing to answer a question. I get all of those, but the last. If I ask some question and they cough, I wouldn't read that as a response to the question. <clears throat> Right. But, but I guess all this all this comes at a cost, right? Brevity fosters uh, ambiguity, and it's very difficult to accurately understand something uh, when it's brief and therefore it's ambiguous, right? And so mm -hmm. one way uh, Buddha often answered many uh, philosophical questions was uh, just by keeping silent. And so I found this great example. Uh, apparently there was like 10 questions that Buddha never answered. And this was one of them. And so if you were to ask him, is the universe infinite? He had a range of options he could answer. He could say yes or no, or he could answer it's neither yes or no, right? It's neither of those answers. But by being silent, right, not answering the question, uh, he kind of suggests that that question is just really not that important. That's sort of like the, I won't dignify that question with a response response, which I've been waiting my whole life to use, but have yet to be faced with a sufficiently undignified query. You know, Tim, I, I would explain that to you, but it's beneath <laughs> me and it's not worth my time, right? Yeah. Uh, so another approach to that, uh, you know, is the universe infinite, is that by being silent, it might lead any answer given might mislead somebody from the true nature and the reality of what's being asked and what's going on, right? The focus in Buddhism is what's going on here and now, right? Mm, right. Yeah, be here now. Uh, lastly, there's this idea of subtlety, right? And subtlety is the means by which uh, uh, Buddhists resolve this kind of, the issue between saying language is hindering communication, but also necessary for it, right? And so subtlety is uh, achieved through, rhetorically, is achieved through the use of a paradox. And according to one scholar that I found, the use of paradox is to, quote, create an insight that cannot be explained by any system of understanding. So it sort of deliberately cultivates uh, uh, some sort of confusion or amb ambiguity uh, to generate awareness that the answer is not logical, it's not linear, it's, it's something very outside the realm of rational thought. That reminds me of Bertrand Russell's claim about paradox. He said, self-referential statements tend toward the paradoxical. So metaphysical questions might often be engaged in a kind of self-reference. Hence, a paradoxical answer might be just what the Buddha ordered. You know, uh, Tim, did I ever tell you about my uh, favorite paradox? I don't think you did. Uh, it's uh, Snoopy and Clifford the Big Red Dog. Okay. <laughs> Is that good? That's, That's good. good. All right. That's good. All right. Um, and actually, that, this style of Buddhist rhetoric reminds me of a verse from uh, a related religious uh, context from the Tao Te Ching, which says, true words aren't eloquent. Eloquent words aren't true. It's beautiful, Tim. That is actually eloquent in its subtlety. And true. Yeah. 
So the theory here is uh, uh, more of a practical lesson, right, as we kind of wrap this up. Um, uh, in Japan, uh, which taught, uh, there was a school that taught Buddhist preaching uh, uh, that was very similar to the ancient Romans' notion of the rhetorical canons. And so that school was located, uh, I did a lot of work on this, trying to find it, and actually I found some sources in some Japanese books that I tried to get through interlibrary loan, but it was impossible to get. Um, but uh, uh, the school was located about, you know, I think it was 1,100 years ago, uh, and uh, it's from the town where uh, my mother-in-law was from, right? And so I, I take it the school you're referring to from 1,100 years ago, not your mother-in-law. No, no, she is a, she is a saint for the ages, uh, but she's quite a young saint. So I was expecting to see in my looking at all this that there would be a clear division between Buddhist rhetoric and Western notions of rhetoric, uh, especially with the canons, um, but I didn't find that. I actually found there were some similarities. There were some differences, but there were some similarities. And so uh, long-time listeners of our podcasts, dating back to last year, uh, know we talked about the five canons of rhetoric, and so we're, uh, I think we should talk about how those canons uh, align with notions of Buddhist rhetoric in terms of the actual style of preaching. I think that's a great idea. Beautiful. Uh, even if you thought it was a bad idea, I was going to do it anyway. <laughs> uh, so there's, uh, in terms of invention, coming up with the topic, uh, as you kind of uh, uh, highlighted earlier, um, the topic of Buddhist preaching usually focuses on human destiny, the transmission, transmigration, I should say, of the body, the soul, uh, the, the journey from pre-birth to present to post-death, and karma and lessons from uh, prominent Buddhists. Style, right, uh, uh, was another canon. And for Buddhist rhetoric, style involves uh, the language choices that we discussed earlier, using commonly understood language uh, 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 that the ordinary average person could understand. Delivering memory, pretty much the same exact thing. Uh, and lastly is organization. And as you know, Tim, I'm a big fan of organizing not only my house and my toys for my kids, <laughs> but also of rhetoric. Uh, I think that's a, one of your better attributes, that's, that's That's the ninth noble path, is <laughs> the organizing. Uh, so uh, uh, Buddhist preaching had, I saw a way, a five-step model of organizing uh, uh, a lesson in Buddhist preaching. And so uh, the first one is theme glorification. And so that's where you recite the verse or a, of a sutra or something from a canonical text related to the topic. After you exp uh, recite that theme, you kind of explain the idea or the lesson of that theme. And then you give an allegorical uh, allegory, a demonstration of an allegory. So you tell something that explains that kind of theme, a tenet that has allegorical kind of a nature to it. I don't know how many more times I could say allegory in that explanation. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the fourth way is to provide some sort of karma or evidence to explain that, right? And so I understood that to be, what is like a real example of that theme and how it's played out? And then lastly, there's some concluding persuasion to kind of su summarize, conclude, and offer the listener some peace of mind in that. Excellent. And so the nice thing about that is, as you're aware of, Tim, uh, Cicero himself, and you know I love Cicero, uh, you do love Cicero. He had two ways of making an argument. One is based on the deductive syllogism, and another one has been called the amplifying argument. 
Um, mm-hmm. And this organization of sermons and Buddhist preaching seems nearly identical to what Cicero's amplifying argument was. But uh, we might be able to talk more about that Cicero's arguments uh, next season. Excellent. So how was all that? It's good. We're good? We're good. All right. So some take-home points. Buddhist rhetoric seems to reflect the idea that rhetoric should be true, honest, free of any notion of being stilted, should be very natural, focus on the here and now, and focus on the audience. And Buddhist rhetoric also seems to suggest that the biggest problem for communication uh, is communication itself, but it's also very much needed. And so while Buddhist rhetoric seems contrary to popular, the popular conception of rhetoric as being tricky and manipulative, there are some similarities between Buddhist rhetoric and traditional Western notions of rhetoric. How's that? That's excellent. Nice. That was good. So Tim, yeah. you have a challenge? I do have a challenge. So. Dave, imagine that you taught two different speech courses. One is for communication majors, and one is called strategic and professional speech, and it's for business majors. Would you, to either one of these audiences, consider interest introducing Buddhist rhetoric into your standard speech curriculum? Uh, I would consider it, given that the there is some nature of overlap between the um, Buddhist rhetoric and those, you know, classical Western notions of rhetoric, I would say I probably already am. Uh, and in fact, the nature of not lying, being honest, and all that kind of stuff, uh, and focusing on the audience are all ideals that, you know, um, I didn't know too much about Buddhist rhetoric before studying all this, but knowing about it now, it, it seems to permeate a lot of what we know about rhetoric. So. I would say not only would I, I probably already am. And in okay. fact, Tim, did you know uh, uh, a number of years ago, uh, I mean, I've just learned about Buddhist rhetoric recently, but I used to study Buddhism quite a lot and I really got into it. And I really, really, after studying it, considered myself to be a Buddhist for some time, but then I realized that I wasn't. <laughs> How did you realize that you weren't? I, I like to start fights in bars. <laughs> And eat cheeseburgers. Yeah, that's right. All right. Yeah. So, Tim, here's my challenge for you. Okay. So, we talked about uh, 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 Buddha, the original Buddha, as being yes. a teacher and a preacher. Mm-hmm. So, there's kind of a mix. Is Buddhism a philosophy or is it a mm-hmm. religion? And so, my question to you is, what is the difference between a philosophy and a religion? You have that's 20 seconds. Question. Okay. So, most religions have... Uh, philosophical elements. Uh, sometimes what's called the theology of a religion is its more philosophical part. But a religion also often has a lots of day-to-day rules that should be consistent with and based in a philosophy or a theological view. Uh, but the people who practice that religion might not be thinking philosophically at all when they do what they're supposed to do and avoid the things they're not supposed to do. So you could think of uh, the philosophy as the sort of uh, the the philosophy is that which undergirds the day-to-day practice of a religion. You know what I would say? What? If it has prayers and candles, it's a religion. If it's not, it's a <laughs> philosophy. Now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? 
Let's have Dr Tim spin the wheel. So today's fallacy is argument from silence. And so that is when you would draw a conclusion from silence. So, uh, you know, say, Tim, you and I are talking and you said, uh, hey, Dave, did you eat my cheeseburger? And I respond with silence, right? Silence. So if I'm silent or if you're silent, I should say, I cannot reasonably infer that you took my cheeseburger or didn't take my cheeseburger, right? Because it's very ambiguous. Yeah. And, and I think the word reasonably is important there because yeah. one of the things that reason is going to depend upon is assertions, you know, using logic and evidence. Mm -hmm. So suddenly you go silent and reason is no longer applicable to the discourse. That's true, right? And so um, it seems important here to recognize, you know, we obviously talked about silence earlier, that when uh, Buddha or other Buddhists and, or people who engage in Buddhist rhetoric uh, use silence, that's not necessarily fallacious because it's not really focused on an argument, right? And that's the reason for mm -hmm. talking about reasonable. It's it's rather to get the person to rethink the, uh, the question. And I remember um, one of my old professors, he taught me a very valuable lesson. Uh, you know, some people say there are no such things as a dumb question. He taught mm -hmm. us there was a dumb question because sometimes we would ask something and he would just sit there and stare at us, and we would know <laughs> we should probably have already known that answer. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, all right, so Tim, who's sponsoring yep. this episode? Today, we're sponsored by Helping Yourself to Self-Help. You are undoubtedly familiar with the self-help gurus from Dale Carnegie to Tony Robbins and Susie Orman, and one thing they all have in common is something to sell, be it a book, a box of tapes, or a day-long seminar at an airport Marriott. But now you can discover the secrets of the best-selling providers of success wisdom in one easy-to-use utility by consulting the Self-Help Concordance, a comprehensive guide to generations of advice on such topics as addiction, annuities, codependence, dysfunction, enablers, finance, losers, love, peak performance, recovery, and toxic relationships. You can browse the alphabetical index or search by author, keyword, sales rankings, or decode or decade of peak popularity. That's the Self-Help Concordance, available in print, CD, or online database. Don't hesitate to act, because as Stephen Covey says, the world has entered an era of the most profound and challenging change in human history. I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Ryder University, and this has been Rhetorico-Rama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. If you have any questions or are looking for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fun or consult your local library.